Good morning, church. If you have a Bible, if you could please turn to Psalm 42. As we continue our series through the book of Psalms, I will tell you that yesterday, 20 men from GRC went paintballing, and we had a great time, but during one of the games of paintball, I I think I got hit in the head about four straight times. So if at any point during this message, I cease to be coherent, or I develop disinhibition syndrome... Uh, the reason is because I was hit in the head with paintballs. So um, we had a great time, and uh, it, was a, it was a good event for the men of the church. But we're in the book of Psalms. We're in Psalm 42. And uh, I'm actually going to read Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, and I'll just very briefly tell you the reason why. Scholars are pretty much completely unified in the belief that Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 were originally written as one psalm, and that at some point, for some unknown reason to us today, these were divided into two psalms. We can see that they're one psalm by the fact that they share a refrain. So really, this is one psalm divided up into three parts. This is the Word of God, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. I'll be reading the entire psalm. As the deer pants for streams of water... So my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. While men say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God, with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls, All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. Vindicate me, O God. Plead my cause against against an ungodly nation. Rescue me from deceitful and wicked men. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Send forth your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my joy and my delight. I will praise you with the harp, O God, my God. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. Let's go into our God's presence now in prayer. Lord God, you are 
the eternal God, the everlasting God of, as we have sung this morning. There is no one like you. And yet there are times of life where our souls are downcast, where we are depressed. Lord, some even here at this moment, perhaps in this room, are in depression. Longing for you, Lord God, longing for your presence and yet feeling as though you are far away. So would you speak to us this morning through your holy word, through the power of your spirit, to show us that our hope is sure and steadfast, that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that you are the eternal God, and that we have a hope laid up for us in heaven, which nothing can destroy or take away from us. O God, set our feet upon the rock that is Christ. Show us that the gospel is true, that your promises are sure, that you will take us all the way home. So lift up our spirits this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Many of you here know the name Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon was a preacher born in 1834, and in 1853... Spurgeon became the pastor of New Park Street Chapel in London. He was just 19 years old. Um, now, Spurgeon was an enormously gifted preacher, an enormously uh, anointed man of the Lord. Quickly, the congregation grew. Uh, eventually, the congregation was at 5,000, and they had to change locations. This is downtown London. Those of you who have been there um, who know London um, perhaps have seen the Metropolitan Tabernacle which has since been rebuilt twice since Spurgeon and his time, but they moved to the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which at the time had seating for 5,000 worshipers with overflow standing room for another 1,000. Eventually, Spurgeon's congregation grew to be over 10,000 people. And this was in the 1850s. This was before um, we had coffee bars and rock walls and basketball courts and mega churches, and I'm, I'm not against that stuff. Um, I hope that maybe God will bless our church with a basketball court. I would love that. Not a paintball field, but a basketball court. Um, Not against those things, but I'm just putting it in context. This was the 1850s. 10,000 people in London were going to hear Spurgeon preach the gospel. It's estimated that Spurgeon preached to 10 million people in his lifetime. He has literally thousands of pages of published work which continues to be published and read today. And if you read Spurgeon, you will be blessed. This was an anointed man of the Lord. Yet Spurgeon had a struggle. wonder of how many of you know this. Spurgeon struggled very deeply with depression. Um, and, and I don't mean just, you know, Spurgeon would get up one morning and w- it wouldn't feel well. Spurgeon would suffer from depression to the point where There were stretches of his ministry where he would be out of the pulpit twice a month. He He wouldn't even be able to get out of bed because he was so depressed. He deeply struggled with depression. And what do we make of this? What do we make of this? Spurgeon was a man who loved Jesus. He loved to preach Jesus. He loved to talk about Jesus. Literally thousands of people were brought to Christ through his preaching, through the work of God. So what do we make of this, that a man like Spurgeon suffered from depression all the way up until um, Jesus took him home? Well, this morning, we're going to look at depression. 
Um, I don't think that the Bible necessarily addresses depression per se as we think about it as a medical term today. But it certainly speaks to depression in a general sense. And the psalmist speaks to depression in our psalm. He says, why are you downcast, O my soul? He says, my tears have been my food day and night. That sounds like a depressed person if, if I've ever heard one with that kind of description. And, you know, there, are, um, there is clinical depression. I think we all know about that. And let, let me just say, if you're here this morning and you do suffer from depression and you haven't told anyone, please tell someone. Please um, share that with someone in your church family. Uh, be open about your struggle. There are those here that, that want to pray with you and to walk with you in the midst of this struggle. Every one of us has struggles. But even for those of us who, who may not suffer from depression like that. We all know seasons of having a downcast soul, don't we? Who, who, who has never had a downcast soul? Who, who's never experienced some kind of depression in a general sense? Whether that's after the, the death of a loved one, whether that's after a job loss, whether that's after a, a divorce or an estrangement from a family member, um, all of us, or financial struggles, parenting struggles, all of us know what it's like to have a downcast soul. And we certainly know what it's like to be around others who have a downcast soul. The, the Christian mystics of earlier years used to call this season a dark night of the soul. And I think that many of us have been there, if not all of us. And to be honest... Um, it shouldn't surprise us that we're going to have struggles in this life. Jesus said in John 16, um, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We should expect hardship. And the psalmist is, he's in a bad place as he writes this psalm. So how do we move? How do we move from depression to doxology? How do we move from depression to worship? That's what we're going to look at this morning. Just three points from, our t- from this psalm. Desperation, longing for God's house. Dialogue, talking to your soul. And finally, doxology, finding hope in God. First of all, desperation, longing for God's house. The, the immediate context of this psalm is the psalmist is in a foreign land. He's in the north of Jordan. He mentions a few landmarks, Mount Hermon. And he is away from the house of God. And he misses the house of God. He wants to worship God in in his house. How many of you have have had times of worship where you're gathered with, with your church family, you're worshiping God, and maybe it's just for a few minutes, maybe it's for an hour, but for that time, you are, you are free of your burdens. You are free of your cares and you are, you are lifted up into the presence of God. The psalmist knows what that's like. He knows what it's like to worship God and he misses worshiping God. Listen to this description. He says, he remembers how he used to go with the multitude leading the procession. You can imagine uh, the, leading to the, to the procession into the temple. And, and how with shouts of joy and thanksgiving he worshipped God, he almost sounds a little charismatic to me 
which as a Presbyterian makes me nervous. So I remind myself of 1 Corinthians 14, 4, which says everything should be done decently and in order. So I'm sure, I'm sure these shouts of, of thanksgiving were done decently and in order. But he, he loves to worship God. He loves to be in God's presence, but now he's away from home. He can't worship God. He talks about in, in verse 1 of, of Psalm 43, Vindicate me, rescue me from a deceitful and wicked men, from an ungodly nation. He's away from home. And he gives this description. He says, he says Lord, my soul is like a deer panting for streams of water. Now, it, especially this really comes out clearly in the Hebrew. The, the word for panting there is one of desperation. The image that we get is of a deer in, in extremely hot conditions in the middle of a drought, teetering along, barely staying aright, about to die if the deer does not find water. And the psalmist is saying, Lord, my soul is dry like that. My soul is like dry mud and the hot sun is baking on it and I will die if I do not go into your presence. If I am not with you, I will, I will die. And here's the ironic thing, and we can all relate to this. We can all relate to this, what the psalmist is saying, because here's the thing, brothers and sisters, God is always with us. We know that. The, the Bible promises that over and over again, that God is always with his people. So we, so we may hear the psalmist here, and we may think, well, why can't he just worship God by himself? Don't all Christians have the Holy Spirit? And the answer is yes. And can't Christians worship God by themselves, whether that's praying to God, singing to God by themselves? And the answer is yes. But yet, he longs to be with God's people. He longs to be worshiping God with the corporate assembly. Let me tell you this, brothers and sisters. There's just something unique. There's something special about worshiping God, not just by yourself, but with His people. Uh, Psalm 22.3 says, God inhabits the praise of His people. Matthew 18.20 says, Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. You see, what the psalmist realizes is this. Yes, we can worship God by ourselves. And there's a place for that. There's a place for seeking God on your own, pursuing God on your own. And yet there is something unique, something special. It's, it has to do with how God has made us. That God desires that we come together as a church family. And this is why the New Testament is so full of this rich language. The New Testament says, you are a holy people, plural. Not just an individual. You are a holy people. You are a, the family of God. You are the body of Christ. There's all these corporate descriptions in the New Testament because God desires that we worship Him not just, not just by ourselves, but that we come together in this place. Some of you here today, you're, you're here and you're struggling. And um, maybe just coming here was difficult. But coming here is exactly what God wants for you to do. And, and God doesn't say come and, and have everything uh, looking perfect in your life. I know, I know we, we look nice for church and, and that's fine. 
I know we do that to reflect the state of our heart, but the truth is all of us know we look nicer on the outside than we look on the inside, right? We know we're coming here as sinners. We're coming here as people who need God. And there is just something unique and something special about coming together as the people of God to worship Him. And depression is such a a difficult struggle because depression is isolating, isn't it? Everything about depression says, um, stay within yourself. Live in, a, live, in a, live in a little prison that, that we erect ourselves and that we are isolated in. And yet God says to his people, those who are struggling, not come with everything together. The, the psalmist, he doesn't have everything together. He says, um, my bones feel like they are dying. My tears have been my food day and night. This is not a guy who's, who walks into church and says, hey, I've got it all together and I can help you. This is, a, this is someone who says, I need God. I need to be in his presence. I need to experience his grace. Have you ever wondered why there are Christians, and this still goes on right now, even as we speak, there are Christians in different parts of the world like North Korea who are risking their very lives to worship God with each other. And we, we might think, well, why can't the Christians in North Korea just, just worship God by themselves? Why can't they just pray quietly to themselves? Why risk their lives, their livelihoods to come together in, in a secret place, sometimes a small group of 10 or 20 people so that they can sing songs together and encourage one another with scripture and, and worship God together as a family. It's because this is what God has made us to do. This is who we are. We're a worshiping people. And so the psalmist says, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul thirsts for you. What do we do in times of desperation? We long for God's presence. It's not that the psalmist doesn't necessarily need, he may need food. He may need shelter. He probably needs some good friends because he talks about people mocking him. It's not that those things aren't important, but he doesn't ask God for those things. He says, Lord, what I want more than anything else is your presence. And, and the place where I, I long for your presence, the, what I remember is worshiping God with, with your people, O oh God, in the temple where I'm in your presence. He longs to be in God's house. You know, throughout the history of the church, Christians, and this goes back all the way to the New Testament, Christians have always been worshiping people. The Jews were worshiping people. And then the early church, what the early church did was, Jesus came and the early church believed in Jesus, Jesus, um, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. And so what they did was they modified the Jewish worship service. The template for the worship service, which we still follow today, by the way, with a message, with singing, with prayers, it was already there. But the New Testament church, what they did was they... They changed it. They kept the template, but there was one huge difference. Jesus Messiah, the Savior of the world, was now at the center of the worship service. And since Jesus said, I'm the true temple, the the Christians realized all of a sudden, well, this is wonderful. We don't have to worship at the temple anymore. We can worship anywhere. The, The building itself doesn't matter. And since Jesus was the true sacrifice once for all for sins, Christians realized we don't have to make sacrifices anymore. We can worship God and thank Him for the sacrifice that he's made. Christians have always been worshiping people. If you struggle with depression today, 
know that part of God's grace to you, part of his remedy for, for that struggle is to come in this assembly exactly as we're doing here today and to be refreshed by his grace in worship. I'm not going to say that that's the only means of grace that God has given for you in your struggle. It's not. There's other, there's other means that, that you need. You need people walking alongside you and there's other things, but please know that God's design is for us to be here. And if you know someone who struggles and, and who struggles maybe sometimes to get out of the bed and you know how it is. Um, you know, usually we put on a happy face and nobody can see it. So, you know, say to that person, look, I'll do whatever I can to help you get here and to worship. I'll pick you up. I'll sit next to you. I'll, um, I'll offer to do whatever I can to come into God's house to worship him. Because that's what we need. First of all, desperation, longing for God's house. But there's a second thing the psalmist does. It's, it's not normally what we would think. Um, none of these prescriptions are really what we would normally think. Usually when you're struggling with depression, the, the prescription isn't, well, go to worship. But that's what God says. It's just go to worship. But secondly, that, that's not the only thing the psalmist does. Secondly, he talks to his soul. He dialogues with his soul. We see this in the, the first part of the refrain. He says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? And I think we know this is a rhetorical question. The psalmist is not really wondering why he's depressed. He knows why he's depressed. He's away from home. He longs to be in the temple. He longs to be um, in God's presence. He has people mocking him saying, hey, hey, bro, where's your God? Um, you, you, look, you look downcast. You look depressed. You keep talking about this God. Where is he? And yet he asks himself these rhetorical questions. He says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why why so disturbed within me? What's the psalmist doing? He's reminding himself of the central truths of his life. He's reminding himself of the core truths of his life. If I can put it like this, what the psalmist is doing by asking himself these questions, he's preaching to his own soul. He's preaching to his own soul. He's saying to his soul, um, you are downcast, but... You have God. You have salvation. You have a hope which nothing can take away. One thing, notice what the psalmist does. He doesn't deny his feelings. He, he's very open about his feelings. He says, um, as I said, my tears have been my food day and night. My bones are wasting away. He's, he's not denying how he feels. But rather, he's preaching to his own soul and saying, yes, you are in a foreign land. Yes, you are struggling. Yes, the pain is real, but what you have in God is so much greater. The hope that you have in God is so much greater. He's reminding himself of what he believes. He's preaching to his soul. He's remembering what he knows is true. That's what we need to do. We need to preach to our own souls. So often in the Christian life, we we need to know this. So often in the Christian life, the problem is not knowledge particularly for those of us who are blessed to have Bibles and commentaries and a million podcasts available to us with incredible preaching, and, and we live in this nation and we have more resources. I have more resources in my, in my office right now than I could read in 10 lifetimes. So often the problem is not knowledge itself, though we should pursue knowledge of God, particularly of, of the, truths, the basic truths of, of Christianity. So often the problem is not knowledge. It's continually going back and taking what we know to be true and, re- and preaching that truth to our hearts. 
It's saying to our hearts, you know, I feel downcast, I'm struggling, but Lord, this is true. Jesus died for me. Jesus rose for me. Jesus has an inheritance for me waiting for me in heaven. One day my struggles will cease. It's preaching to your own soul. You know, we don't think about this, but all of us have a constant dialogue running in our own minds about all kinds of things. We're, we're always making judgments. We're forming opinions. We're having ideas about different things about life. We're, we're, we're thinking about what do I think about that TV show or that movie? Um, we're thinking about what clothes do I like to wear? We're, we're thinking about all kinds from the mundane to, to, the, to the big questions like what is God is like? And, and so often we don't even think about what we're doing. We're, we're just thinking creatures. It's part of being made in the image of God. We're thinking creatures and we're not even considering that we're doing that. And so we need the word of God to shape the constant narrative that's always going on in our minds as we're thinking about different things. The psalmist says it here. Look down at verse 3 of Psalm 43. The psalmist says, Send forth your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. He's talking about God's word, I think, primarily. He's saying, Lord, I need your word to shape who I am, to shape my thinking. Because so often, when we look at things, we look at things like through a pair of glasses that's, that's got all kinds of stuff on it. It's murky, it's, it's not transparent, it's clouded. And so often as we think about things in our lives, like we think about our future and we think about our kids and we think about our job and we think about our health and we think about God's plan, so often we're seeing that because we're sinful through a, through a clouded lens. And when we come to God's word, it's a refreshing um, and, and it's really the only way to cl- truly see reality as God sees it. That's what the Bible is. The Bible is life as God sees it. It's reality as God sees it. And when we come to the scriptures, we're able to be reminded of the truths that we need to hear without any kind of murkiness, without any kind of cloudedness, any kind of distortion. The Bible gives us life. It gives us reality as it truly is. And we're so prone to forget that. So what we need is we got to constantly be shaped by this book. And I know it can be easy when you hear sermons, even for myself, as I hear sermons about the Bible, to think, oh no, another opportunity to, to feel bad about how I don't read my Bible as much as, much as I should. And, and here's the truth. God didn't give us this book, His inspired truth, so that we would feel bad about how much we don't read it. God gave us this book as a grace to us, to speak truth to us. It's always here for us. It's always here to say, when our, when our thinking becomes clouded, when our souls feel downcast, to go and to take this book and to say, okay, great, now I'm, now I'm seeing reality as it really is. Yes, I may feel downcast. The Bible never denies emotion, never denies suffering, but rather it points us to a greater reality, God himself. Romans 12 says this, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed through the renewing of your mind. We talked, to, Ken mentioned a verse from Colossians 3 as well. What, what we long for is the mind of Christ. And, and we've got to be in this book. We've got to have our thinking shaped by this book 
so that when different voices come into our lives, and depression is a voice that says to us, life is not worth living. And there's no, what's the point? Things will never get better. That's the, that's the narrative of depression and other struggles. And God's word says, I've given you a hope. I will deliver you from every struggle. You have salvation in Christ. Dialogue, talking to our souls. We've got to challenge our thinking. We've got to challenge the narrative that we are quick to accept with God's word. Finally, doxology praise. You know, um, this is probably what's the most amazing thing about the whole psalm is that the psalmist, in his depression, in his struggle, praises God. We, we know that misery loves company, right? So how can the psalmist, in this place of struggle, how can he praise God? And he says it in verse 8. He gives this beautiful description. He says, By the day the Lord directs his love, at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. And he ends each refrain with this, Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Somehow, the psalmist, he starts with depression, he ends with doxology or worship. How does he do this? How does he go from one to the other? He does it by putting his hope in God. He does it by finding the only true hope that can sustain somebody through any storm. And, and this hope, it's not a general hope. It's not a vague hope. It's not a hope of, well, there's a higher power out there and that, that higher power cares for me. It's, it's a specific hope. He calls God his savior. He calls God his rock. He says, you are my God. His hope is in God alone. And when your hope is completely rooted in God, you can withstand anything. You can go over, you can face any struggle. You know, the other night, the Desch family was out eating dinner. And uh, we're, we're just enjoying a nice dinner. And my second child, my son Justice, he's eating a chicken tender. And I have no idea where this came from. But he looks up and he says, he just announces to the table, he says, he says, we don't sin at every minute, but we're sinful at every minute. And then he went back and took a bite of his chicken tender. And I thought, I, I'm serious. I thought this, I looked at Betsy like, whoa, uh, where'd that come from? And I, I promise that's not normal for a pastor's kid or anything. Um, I didn't know. I was like, wow. And I thought, Justice could preach this sermon. He's probably, he's probably got some better things to say than I do. And... Um, you know, kids just say these things out of the blue. I, don't, I have no clue where that came from. He said, we're not sin, we don't sin every minute, but we're sinful every minute. And he's right. Sin is a disease. You know, if you think about depression, depression, and I, I, know, that, I know, by the way, that depression is a complex thing, particularly when we're speaking about it clinically. It has genetic factors. I know all that. And... We, we need to be nuanced and careful in our treatment of it as well. And I, ho I hope nobody here feels like um, I'm throwing easy answers out because I'm not. But I do want all of us to know that sin is a sickness. It's, it's a part of our nature. Sin isn't just what we do, it's who we are. And what sin does is it turns us in on ourselves what it does is it, it makes us all, it makes our souls like, like a black hole. You know, we all know what a black hole does. It sucks everything in. And if you've ever struggled with depression, um, you know that 
it, it can be so isolating, but it, you also know it's so inward focused. Even if you don't even want to be inward focused in that moment, it's so inward focused. And, you know, what God offers us through his grace, like I said, there's, there's, it, it's not an easy thing to deal with. But what God offers us is a hope in Jesus Christ that can turn that inward focus outward. And, and it can make us um, be consumed with something other than ourselves, namely God himself and what he's done for us in the gospel. And what it can actually do is turn that inward bent outward so that all of a sudden our focus is no longer so much on ourselves. Although, of course, we're always going to struggle with that as sinners but our focus becomes on loving God and serving others. You know, I want to end with this. What's so wonderful about worship? What's so wonderful about worship? And, and why? one of the reasons I love coming to worship as a, as a believer myself is that when I come to worship, and I don't always feel like, I'm not always in this, you know, um, state of, of uh, you know, in the heavens. And there's times where I come to worship like all of you. And, and Lord, you, you know, you know exactly where I am and my heart may not be exactly where you want it to be. But what happens when we praise? The wonderful thing about worship is that it directs us away from ourselves and it directs us to God. Think about it. If you're praising anything, whether it's a, rock, you know, a musician you love, um, a movie you know, star you love, an athlete you respect, someone, a literary you know, person you respect, whatever... Um, Whenever you're truly praising them, there's no focus on yourself. Now, I, I know oftentimes when we praise in our society today, we're trying to get something in return. But let's be honest, that's flattery. That's not worship. When, when, we're, when we're praising someone to get something in return, that's manipulation or flattery. That's not worship. True worship is a complete focus and praise of the other. We're, we're completely delivered from ourselves, and we are filled up with the other. And when we come into God's presence, that's what he does with us as he engages our hearts. We worship him. We are filled up with him. And from one degree of glory to the next, as the scriptures say, the focus becomes less about us and more about God and more about Jesus. And we are transformed. It can only happen by putting our hope in God. If you're here today and you struggle with having a downcast soul or really any struggle that is common to man, the Bible says, put your hope in God. Find His grace which will sustain you. Come into His presence and be transformed. It's not always an easy process and it's certainly not a, not a magic bullet, a, one, a one-time thing. But God, through the power of His Spirit, changes us so that we are free to go from depression to doxology. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this, your holy word. Thank you for the words of the psalmist. We pray we would long for you as the psalmist longs for you. Do this work of grace in us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Comfort those who may be hurting this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.